0: You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates on the Pet Life Radio Network. I'm Keith Sanderson creator and host of Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates, award-winning writer, animal expert, and sidekick of Max A. Pooch, the canine champion for animals and the environment. We're the unique Pet Life radio program that is created for animal lovers everywhere, and each episode is dedicated to an awesome animal advocate whose work helps improve or save the lives of animals and make our planet a better place. Our guest today is Jeff Campbell, author of the book, Daisy to the Rescue, true stories of daring dogs, paramedic parrots, and other animal heroes. Daisy to the Rescue is a unique collection of stories of how animals not only make our lives better, but also can and do literally save our lives as well. Jeff will share with us what he believes animals are thinking when they do something extraordinary, such as rescuing a human. But first, a word from our sponsors. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. I'm your host, Keith Sanderson, and our guest today is Jeff Campbell, writer, book editor, and author of the book, Daisy to the Rescue, released October 7th. Jeff has specialized during the past 20 years in editing books dealing with animal intelligence and emotions. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much, Keith. It's great to be here. I love to talk about animals and their amazing abilities.
0: And I am, too. You know, the headline of the media release I received about Daisy to the Rescue read, New book conveys a thrilling and inspirational message about the world we share with animals. And I got into it, and I found the book unusual, namely because it just wasn't stories about dogs pulling babies out of swimming pools, but it was much, much deeper than that. Why did you write Daisy to the Rescue? And who is Daisy, Jeff?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, that's a good good question. I wrote the book. My main purpose really was to ask why. I think that we hear about animals rescuing people every now and then, and they're very moving and heartwarming, and we kind of go, ah, and that seems to be the end of it. But these stories are actually, can be very, very important stories. And in fact, some of them have changed science and changed the way that we look at animals. Science in general, has a hard time crediting animals with the sorts of mental abilities and intelligence that are almost required by definition in a life-saving rescue. By which I mean empathy, compassion, a sense of morality, self-awareness, certainly, courage, and even altruism. We see all of these, not necessarily in every story, but in many of these stories. That does challenge what science, you know, generally credits animals with. A lot of that inspiration really comes from my work with um, scientist Mark Beckoff, who's a huge animal advocate and a well known ethologist, which is uh, the study of animal lines.
0: Mark wrote the forward to your book, didn't he?
1: Yes, he did. So he, was very, he very graciously wrote the forward to the book, and he consulted with me on some of the science and some of the stories. Um, and our work together on some of his books, with myself as editor. Really, you know, set me on this course in terms of how to understand animals and how to understand animal minds and the, the state of the science today and really, you know, taking a look at these stories and trying to present those. The audience for this book is uh, teens, young adults. Oh, I so, was going to
0: ask you that. So the, the age group are uh, young adults and that, that's interesting.
1: Well, and that's, you know, the, really the, the main purpose, right, my main purpose is to ask why and to really explore, not just celebrate these animals, which this book certainly does, but to then dig deeper and say, well, you know, what do these stories tell us about animals? But then to also inspire that same uh, sense of curiosity in the reader, in the, in the hopefully, ideally, the young adults who are reading this and kind of open their eyes. And what still needs to be known? I mean, a lot of times we take for granted that our dogs, our cats, the, the companion animals that we have in our homes— love us and care for us and they're there with us. Certainly no one expects <laughs> their pet to save their life, but now and then they do. And that actually is a, you know, a rather important event, not just for the person who's saved, but for what we understand about what animals understand and know.
0: You know, it, it's interesting. We had a personal experience, almost a swimming pool kind of story. And my uh, in-laws, my uh, mother and father-in-law, they had a lived out in California and had a basset hound. And when our daughter was about she was a toddler, we visited them and they had a swimming pool. And Christine, every time she started toddling to the swimming pool, that basset hound would put itself mm-hmm. between her and her and the pool, and mm-hmm. much to our amazement, and uh, I've always remembered that, and you could tell the dog was really concerned.
1: Well, and that's, you expect, or you hope, I mean, you, and, and that is, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think that we all want to believe that our animals understand that we love and care for them, and we certainly, you know, feel they're caring for us, and you see that directly in moments like this, and for instance, one of the things that uh, was really surprising to me is that You expect that with a long-term companion animal, that you have a strong bond and a bond that would be strong enough that, you know, not only would, for instance, that basset hound go out of their way to help somebody who might, you know, get into trouble, but put themselves on the line to, I mean, I tell a story in the book about a golden retriever who fights off a cougar. The cougar, it was in British uh, Columbia, the cougar was stalking this 10, 11-year-old boy and... Just as the cougar pounced, the golden retriever, Angel, you know, jumped and intercepted the cougar, and then, they, and then the cougar attacked the dog. And as luck would have it, they were able to save the dog, but not without really nearly killing Angel, the animal. And so in a situation like that, Angel knows that she's putting herself in trouble by, by jumping in the way of this, this cougar. And that's just, you know, that's, that level of altruism is not something that, we, that scientists often credit animals with something that we often reserve for ourselves, that, you know, human beings are, you know, have these, you know, higher emotions of empathy and compassion and altruism, but we don't necessarily expect it of animals, and that's what these stories show. But what I wanted to say about that was that one of the things that surprised me is how, I have stories in the book in which animals were rescued from a shelter, and within not only weeks and days, but hours, went out of their way to uh, save somebody in a life-threatening situation.
0: That's amazing. That's truly amazing. And you have, I, I think, 50 stories, different stories in your book? I have sort of 50,
1: 50 named profiled stories, so that it's a, it's the collection of stories, and you go story by story through the book. But I found, when I was doing the initial research, well over 100, easily well over 100 rescue stories. Now, not all of those rescue stories could be confirmed. You know, Part of the research that I did was just making sure that you know, basically all the stories that I was fighting were on the level or was able to get enough information on them to sort of verify that they were real and that they weren't sort of exaggerated stories.
0: So your writing of them, you found they were more than a myth then, right?
1: Oh, without question. Without question, life-saving rescues are real and they happen all the time. They happen all the time. And with, and one of the other goals in the book was not just to talk about companion animals like dogs and cats, but to look at as many species as possible as a way to understand that, well, to explore this, you know, the topic of animal intelligence and emotions and all that. So I think I have 15 species.
0: Wow. In the end. You break it up by sections, and can you tell us what the sections are, like uh, domestic yeah. animals? or
1: So the first section is companion animal, domestic animals, and companion animals, but that includes a pot-bellied pig, a rabbit, horses, uh, and even a parrot, in addition to uh, plenty of dogs and a few cats. And then there's a section on uh, trained animals, which is sort of a different issue in that, you know, we train service animals to assist us in many, many endeavors, and some of which are inherently life-saving. Police dogs, canines, uh, military dogs that um, sniff out bombs and stuff like that. Um, You asked who uh, who Daisy is, and Daisy is uh, famous because she was just about, she might literally be the first dog that was trained to detect cancer in humans. And her story is that, and this is sort of, it was a radical idea, 10 years ago, that a dog would be able to kill. And so one of the first researchers to start to deliberately train animals in this way was the woman who owned Daisy, and she decided just to start with her own dog, who didn't otherwise have any particular training at home. And what happened was that she was being trained to detect, I'm not sure, I think it might have been bladder cancer or something like that. And then what Daisy did, in the, within six or seven months of her training, before she, the training was really finished, she alerted on her owner and found breast cancer. So she found, in a, in a different way, a different kind of cancer, and dogs have now been trained to detect a dozen or more types of cancer in various different ways. So it's actually somewhat significant that the dog alerted on a cancer that it wasn't being trained to detect and saved this woman's life, who's now gone on to become a leader in this field, which you know has the potential to essentially change everyone's life.
0: Wow. That's amazing. You're doing something for science. You teach your dog to find cancer and the dog turns around and finds you have cancer. That is that is really an amazing story.
1: Well, I was going to say one of the things about it that makes it so amazing and, and about dogs detecting cancer that's so amazing is that they can detect it at the very, very earliest stages. So when Daisy detected the cancer, it was so small that when she went in to get it checked, she came back clean and the doctor said, you know, you're fine. There's nothing there then Daisy continued to alert. And so she went back and got uh, another test, a core level biopsy or something like that. And then they finally found it. But it was so small that you couldn't even feel it. And because it was detected so early, she got surgery and it was fine and she recovered completely. But that's, you know, that's one of the amazing things about a dog's nose is that they can detect it so, so early and with a level of accuracy that that stunned me as I researched it to 95 or 99% of the time, a trained dog can detect cancer with that level of accuracy.
0: Wow, that's incredible. Now, okay, so we have panyan animals and then a section on trained animals. And what are the other sections? Wild animals, right? Is that one of them? If that's I recall? right. And then the third
1: section is wild animals. You know, that's significant because domestic animals are obviously, the definition of domestic is that they have evolved to live with people. So they have an affinity with people that's, you know, now part of the species. But wild animals essentially have no, why would they go out of their way to save someone, but I have stories of dolphins, gorillas, monkeys, seals, kangaroos, elephants, potentially even lions, blue whales, saving people from danger. So it's, it's fascinating, and I think it really, it implies a great deal about, one, the intelligence of two that compassion across species may be much more widespread in the animal kingdom than we necessarily ever give them credit for. Yeah, Um,
0: I was going to ask you about that. You're talking about human non-human animals but when we get back from the break I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about is it possible that species of animal will do something for another species? Certainly. Okay, and we have to take a break right now to hear from uh, the wonderful people who helped bring Max A. Pooch to you and we'll be right back.
1: pet parents. This is Christy Vaughn, host of The Doggy Dish. Do you love your furry companion? Do you love making him or her healthy treats but can't seem to find the time? Great news. The Doggy Dish is the perfect show for you. Every episode is chock full of healthy and easy recipes that are made with ingredients you most likely have on hand. Tune into The Doggy Dish for yummy and healthy recipes for your canine kids.
0: Every week, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's awesome Animal Advocates. I'm your host, Keith Sanderson, and our guest is Jeff Campbell, author of the book Daisy to the Rescue. True Stories of Daring Dogs, Paramedic Parrots, and Other Animal Heroes. And before we went on break, Jeff was talking about why animals act as they do. And I asked him about animals from one species helping another. And so Jeff is going to tell us a little bit about that. And Jeff, help us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, kind of one short answer is that I deliberately decided not to look at cross-species situations, either life-saving or otherwise, probably to keep the focus on life-saving rescues with humans. And, but that doesn't mean that there's a lack of, of these kinds of stories. Part of what it means is that most likely these stories happen and we don't see them. Every now and then you do, you know, you see in the news that it comes up that you hear about these stories. You hear about basically cross-species friendships more than life-saving experiences. There there's a, was a famous one between a, uh, a hamster and a snake. And there's others, there was a couple of fascinating books on this, actually, which I I looked at as I was doing my research. One in which, I believe it was a tiger, a bear, and a lion were all in a... uh in an animal, not a shelter, but a a care facility. And they were all living together and they were all friends. They would play together. They'd lived in the same house together. So, you know, you have these um, amazing incidents in which animals that you wouldn't expect to care for each other, you would expect them to eat each other, don't. They actually become friends. And a lot of it is, you know, it's sort of based on unique circumstances. In the normal course of events, you know, animals live out sort of what you would expect in terms of predators and prey and stuff like that. But occasionally, things happen that defy conventional wisdom. And that's exactly what life saving rescues do. They defy conventional wisdom. One of the points that I make is that one reason I think that science has a hard time studying these sorts of stories is that they're extreme and they happen very rarely, but it doesn't mean that what happens in them is random. My sense is that what we're seeing is animals doing things that they may never have done before and that they wouldn't have done if someone's life wasn't in danger. For instance, one of the stories that is, you know, it's hard to verify, but it's, it's extremely evocative, is there was in Africa some years back, a story of a girl who was kidnapped, she was 12 years old, by seven or eight men, who actually, they kidnapped her, but they intended to uh, marry her to one of them. It's kind of a very upsetting and tragic situation, and they were pursued across hundreds of miles across Africa. At one point, they ran into a very small pride of three male lions. And what the story that was told and was published and, you know, is, is verified as much as I was able to is that, of course, when they ran in you know, when the men ran into these lions, they took off, they ran away. And then for about half a day, the girl who was, you know, hysterically upset, crying, the lions sat with her. And then when the police finally caught up and the authorities finally caught up, they saw her with the lions. And when the lions saw them, the lions got up and walked away.
0: That is truly amazing. That is certainly a uh, story I have never heard before and, and is much more than the proverbial pulling the child out of the swimming pool story.
1: And, of course, at the time, there was lots of, of expert opinion saying, well, it couldn't have happened that way. That you know, The lions were not being compassionate toward this girl. Either the lions were, A, preparing to eat her, but they just hadn't done it yet, or maybe the lions were confused. Maybe they thought that you know this crying girl was sort of, you know, this very similar to a lion cub, and so, you know, this tugged on their lion heartstrings, and so they protected her instead. But if we can believe the basic details of the story, which I think we can, because they're verified by the police and the girl and all that, so we know at least that much. You know, certainly, if the lions had wanted to eat any of them, they would have, but they didn't attack and eat any of the men, which they could have done easily. They didn't attack and eat the girl, and it's hard to imagine that they would confuse the girl with, a cub particularly if they meant to do what lions usually do which is and lions attacking people in africa is not uncommon because of all the pressures oh, there. And, and you, you know you, so you, you know it's like we hear much more about the other side of it of lions either attacking domestic animals in africa or, or running into problems with people so you know that's another reason why this particular story at the time just sort of exploded because this is not something that you hear. And yet, here we have an example that may very well show that even a lion can show, in a a very evocative, almost biblical way, compassion for someone who is completely defenseless, a young girl.
0: That is a great story. Now, I I must ask you to share something else with our audience, because uh, one thing that caught my eye when I I read the media release was the quote, the book Daisy to the Rescue, True Stories of Daring Dogs, Paramedic Parrots, and other animal heroes, Mm -hmm. and that paramedic parrot, that (laughs) that caught my eye. Can you share with us a little bit about
1: that? Sure, sure, sure. No, that's that's a wonderful story. I love the field of animal intelligence and animal emotions, um, and I think that You know, if I could recommend to listeners seeking out Mark Beckhoff's uh, work, please do, because it's fascinating. Everything that there is to know and everything that we don't know yet. And I think one of the things that, you know, parrots and certain social birds, ravens and other things, they show a great deal of intelligence when given the chance or when we pay attention. And so I was only able to find one bird story, uh, and that's Willie the parrot, who saved a toddler who was choking. And the story is that these two women were roommates and one of the women had a daughter. She was about two. And the other roommate had Willie. And I they had a I guess Willie had been around pretty much since the, the daughter was born. So was very much a family companion animal. Although how much, you know, how much can we assume that the bird knew about the baby? How much did the, the bird care? We really don't know. But what happened was the roommate was babysitting the daughter and left the room for just a minute she actually had to go to the bathroom, right? Which is what we always say to babysitters, you can't leave the room for a minute even to go to the bathroom. In fact, this is true, because within that, within 30 seconds, the toddler who was watching TV and eating a Pop-Tart started to choke and couldn't swell, turning blue. And Willie, the parrot, started making this huge ruckus and started crying out, Mama, baby. Willie called her mother, Mama, all the time. So this is a word that the bird knew. But Willie had never said, Baby, before. And so when, when Megan heard her parrot crying out in alarm and crying mama baby, she obviously, she came out as quickly as possible, saw um, the child Hannah in distress, gave her the Heimlich maneuver and, you know, saved the baby's life. And then was the thing that shocked her about it was that she'd never heard Willie say baby before. That's a very striking aspect to this rescue, which is that, you know, birds mimic all the time. But we don't necessarily think that they understand what they're saying. This
0: would seem to indicate that perhaps they do.
1: Exactly. Perhaps they do. Perhaps they do, and much more than they would normally reveal or that we would even notice. But like I said, in this particular circumstance, when it really, really mattered, that intelligence gets put into to play. That intelligence comes out, and they do something that she had no... Reason. You know, Parrot, I'm talking about Willie. Actually, Willie was a boy. that he didn't have any reason to display before. I
0: can attest to the intelligence of birds. Our daughter found a crow when she was younger. And the crow had obviously been someone's pet because it hopped right up on her finger and it was hungry and everything. And so we took it in and I put an ad in the paper and got a phone call and, and this person came and took said, yeah, that looks like the crow my mom found and raised from a baby. And off the person went. And 10 minutes later, another person called and we said, oh, no, the owner has claimed it. And she said, if it's not his, will you call me if he returns it? I said, sure, sure, lady. And a little while long, uh, goes by, and the man brings the crow back says, this isn't my mother's crow. So I call <laughs> up the woman. And she says, yeah, I'll come and see if it's our crow. And we're in the garage, and uh, the crow is sitting there on my daughter's finger just looking at her. And all of a sudden, he flies out of the garage. And there's this station wagon coming up the uh, the street and turns into our driveway. And the crow lands right on top of the station wagon on the luggage racks and sits there. And when the door opens, hops right down on this woman's shoulder. And so I had the answer to my question. You can't tell crows apart, but they can tell who they belong to. Oh,
1: yeah, no question. <laughs> no and,
0: question. Uh, You know, that gave me a feeling that this was more than just a dumb bird. And why do you feel it's important, Jeff, for people to understand that animals can do complex acts and not just be guided by pure instinct?
1: It makes all the difference in the world. I mean, ideally, it it makes the difference in how we, we then treat animals. I think that if one imagines that we look out onto the world and all the eyes looking back at us don't really know what's going on, that's one way to go through life. To look out at the world and see the eyes looking back at us and to know that, In ways different from us, but in their own ways, they know what's going on. It makes all the difference in the world and how we would um, certainly care for the animals in our care, but care for all animals in the world. Because not only do we know that they feel pain and they feel emotions, joy, sadness, but in situations like this, they will put themselves on the line for us. They'll cross species boundaries just simply to help someone else in danger. Now, of course, this isn't going to happen all the time. It doesn't happen all the time. But that it would even happen once, I think, should change the way we regard animals. Because certainly that's the way science operates. If one individual in a species displays an ability, well, then it becomes a potential for the entire species. And that's, you know, another one of the things that's very evocative about something like the, the lion story. It certainly was true, I tell two stories of gorillas who save young boys who fall into their enclosures in the zoo. And both of these gorillas did, in fact, change science because of their acts of compassion. One was Jumbo, and one was Binti Jua, and they're very, very famous stories.
0: I recall seeing something on TV about re, not too long ago about a child falling into a uh, gorilla enclosure, and the gorilla just coming up. I think it was a mother gorilla just came up and uh, for you know I seemed concerned about it and, and protected it.
1: And actually, I think, I mean, if I'm, I'm thinking, I, I, I saw that it was on Animal Planet or National Geographic. It was not a new story. I think that was Binti Jua's story, and they, had, they were sort of telling it again. It happened, I think, in 1996 or 1998, so it was a while ago. But at the time, you know, scientists really were still kind of holding to the, you know, the idea that gorillas were sort of inherently violent and dangerous. And, uh, you know, Binti Jua was a mother, a new mother. And, you know, that's exactly all that she did was this young five- or six-year-old boy fell in the enclosure with unconscious, picked the boy up, cradled him, so it was clearly like consoling him and and being kind to him, depending on, on, you know, who you believe was protecting the child from the other gorillas. And then when the keepers tried to get all the gorillas to leave, Binti Jewett took the child, laid him very gently by the door where the keepers came in and out, and then went herself to go to their, you know, interior enclosure. So did everything that you would expect A caring mother to do to care for an injured child and it was as simple as that but that in and of itself scientists had been doubtful of that that gorillas could even do that much and because this was filmed and you know it could be studied in a much more uh, methodical way than most life-saving rescues they happen and all you have is a person's word so it becomes very hard to sort of really like from a research perspective to be able to say, well, yes, we know that the animal did X, Y, and Z because all you have is somebody's word. But because this was filmed, it was very easy to to look at it and really dissect her behavior. And it changed. It changed science. It changed the way, you know, gorillas were regarded. Now all of that, the self-awareness, the compassion, the empathy, you know, the cooperation, uh, love, it's all, you know, gorillas now are all attributed with all of that.
0: With all of that. Hey, uh, where will we be able to uh, buy Daisy to the Rescue?
1: Well, you know, I can't tell you all the places, but um, on that wonderful online bookseller, Amazon, almost virtually, um, I am certain it's in Barnes and & Noble, and I think most of the big booksellers. I don't believe that it's an e-book, although that could happen in the future. And certainly, if the, the public, my publisher is Zest Books. They're a, uh, an imprint or a wing of Hutton Mifflin Harcourt. So certainly, if you find the Zest Books website, you can order it from there.
0: Okay, and do you have a website, by the way, Jeff?
1: I do. Brand new and nothing fancy, but jeffcampbellbooks.com.
0: Okay, that's jeffcampbellbooks.com. And I also understand that the publisher Zest Books has a contest. The winner will receive a portrait made by Ramsey Bayer, the book illustrator for uh, Daisy to the Rescue. Where can our audience find out more about that?
1: Well, yeah, and actually, let me say that I I really, uh, I haven't mentioned Ramsey or her illustrations, but I think that that's, you know, one of the things that I I couldn't be more excited about with this particular book, is that Ramsey's illustrations are just absolutely gorgeous. They're real-life portraits of every single animal hero, and you know they're just beautiful. They lend so much, uh, you know, heart to the book. I think to see these portraits—they're not just photographs of the animals, but these really beautiful portraits. So yes, the contest is that readers can win. Uh, I think if they send in an illustration of their own animal, they can win a, a portrait of their own animal by Ramsey. And you just go to the website justbooks.net and go to the um, the book page, and a, a link to the contest will be there. I believe it's Daisy to the Rescue contest.
0: For our audience that's listening, just look for the link on the um, page at our archive website uh, at Pet Life Radio. And Jeff, you know what? We've run out of time. I mean, it's gone quickly. It's uh, What an interesting topic. And thank you so much for sharing with our audience what went into your new book and Daisy to the Rescue and why you wrote it.
1: Thank you very much, Keith. And thanks for the opportunity to, to speak to you and to share all this.
0: And uh, Max A. Pooch gives five big tail-wagging wolves for the work you've done to help us humans understand animals are more than reactions and instincts. And I also want to thank Mark Winter, executive producer and co-founder of Pet Life Radio and the sponsors who make this program possible. Please join us for each and every episode of Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates and be sure to tell your friends about us. Until we meet again, remember, if you do a good thing for an animal today, your reward will be you have helped to make the world a better place. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.